the National Network of State Teachers of the Year, NSTOI, is a membership organization of State Teachers of the Year and finalists that works to provide all students with exceptional and equitable learning opportunities by improving practice, policy, and advocacy through the lens of equity. What does it mean to be truly educated? To be truly educated is for someone to leave our school process prepared to move forward in life in a fulfilling way that provides personal satisfaction, but also organizes that person's life around making their community better. What more could you ask for than you know, purpose-driven, motivated young adults who have the skills and mindsets to make their way forward in creative, distinctive ways that make their world better? That's Ted Dintersmith. Though Ted made his fortune in venture capitalism, he's made his greatest impact on education. His books, Most Likely to Succeed and What School Could Be, along with his film, Most Likely to Succeed, are gaining momentum and challenging policymakers, educators, and community members to reimagine the role of school as it prepares our children for the future. On July 9th, Ted gave his keynote at the National Network of State Teachers of the Year Teacher Leadership Conference titled, Education's Indispensable Role as a Foundation of Our Democracy, where Ted challenged educators to consider their role as the defenders of democracy in an environment where democracy is under fire. This is the first episode of a five-part series on the NSTOI conference. Throughout this series, I will be joined by the 2018 Virginia State Teacher of the Year, Michelle Cottrell-Williams. Hey, Aaron, I'm so excited to be here with you. Michelle is going to help me unpack the takeaways of these educational leaders whose message will challenge us to go beyond the curriculum. Yeah, one of the ways that, that I feel like you really um, talk about this is in, in your advocacy, right? You advocate that schools should support teachers in their goal of engaging and inspiring kids to develop their own talents and identities as learners, give students voice and choice in their learning and equip them with the skills to learn on their own. What led you to this conclusion? Well, I, I don't think that was my view at the beginning. I was sort of didn't have a strongly held view one way or another about the role of teachers. I sort of knew instinctively there were real issues in the way we educate kids. Um, I, I kind of evolved over a period of time from trusting to concern to alarmed to code red alarmed. You know, but really for me, a, a pivotal experience was uh, four school years ago when I, I sort of got out of my, you know, my own personal bubble, which we all have them, and uh, spent ten and a half months, pretty much every single day of the school year, going all across the country. So I went to all fifty states, visited a couple hundred schools. I met so many people in the field of education from all spheres, from all all different angles. But I was blown away by our teachers. I mean, I, over and over, you know, I'd go to schools. I saw how hard they were fighting on behalf of their kids. I do community events, and often it was a teacher that would stay till the very end to share with me his or her story, often in tears. 
And it really helped me understand, which I think far too few business people put the effort into really developing a perspective, a, a full-bodied perspective on what's going on in our education system. But that experience helped me understand our teachers are experts. Our teachers often create the most amazing learning experiences despite being surrounded by all sorts of constraints. But we have not done them a good service, nor our kids, with the way we've implemented policies that shape, define, and measure education effectiveness. And one of the things that we do to measure if we're doing this effectively is testing. I I saw a fantastic tweet by um, an educator named Joe Tress who said that school culture is all about ranking and sorting kids, especially by race. And um, as you know, we see these emphasis on ranking and sorting students through testing uh, determine both the quality of school and the college readiness of students. What do you say to to educators, policymakers, uh, administrators who worry that making pedagogical shifts could potentially disadvantage a school or our students because these you know, the, the, the results of state testing are both public um, and used to uh, determine admission into colleges. Yeah. So, very interesting, important topic. Um, and, and as I think everybody listening knows, you know, the bet made uh, with no child left behind is if we just measured kids more frequently, we'd see test score differences that reflected gross disparities in how we treat the educational opportunities of kids across income areas, uh, income levels, and across ethnicities. And so we've been testing the bejesus out of our kids for 20 years. And sure enough, you know, the achievement gap was there, continues to be there. And as long as that's our model, we'll always be there. Um, and, and so what would I say? I mean, I think this is a really important issue. So bear with me if I go on for a second. But going to all 50 states, I made a practice of doing my best to go online and find the sample questions for the state-mandated exams, which uh, you know, I'm not sure how many people have done, but I always say, look at the questions. If you believe in the test, look at the questions. And I have a quite a strong math background. I mean, people need to understand these state-mandated exams are generally done on the cheap. They are at a budget level that consumes most of the state Department of Education's discretionary budget dollars, but aren't big enough or high enough to do you know, reasonably good test. You know, and there, it is possible to do tests that actually get at something important. These tests don't do that. And so the math questions are often poorly posed. I would be willing to bet my bottom dollar that the same tests that keep many kids from graduating from high school are tests that state legislators would fail. And so I always say, I have this saying I love, eat your own cooking. If you're going to ram these tests down the throats of our schools, our teachers, and our students, If you're going to rank schools, rank teacher effectiveness, and block life opportunities for kids on the basis of these tests, take them yourselves with a proctor and tell us how you did. And when you're all failing, particularly the math section of these tests, explain to us why they should penalize. You know, you look at America today, if you're a kid who doesn't have a high school degree, particularly if you're growing up in low-income circumstances, if you're a kid of color and you don't pass that high school exam and you don't get your high school diploma, it's game over for that kid. You, you know they're headed for a life of homelessness, incarceration, poverty. Nothing good happens when a kid with no family support 
with no lean-in from their surrounding society, has no high school degree. And so if you're going to hold a kid, if you're going to send a kid down that life path, let's at least make sure the questions get at something important, and they don't. And so what, what I find is, and I write about this in my book, What School Could Be, is when these exams, when these tests, even at the early grade levels, are all around breadth of vocabulary and ability to do low-level math problems quickly under time pressure without mistakes, you're getting at how much the parents are drilling the kid on it. And honestly, if you observed, if you had, you were the fly on the wall in a lot of rich families, you would see, you know, the kid gets an iPad to do motion math when they're young. Every car drive is a chance to expand vocabulary. I mean, by the time these kids are five or six years old, they're loaded for bear when it comes to these tests. So they show up at school. We now test these kids pretty extensively at the very youngest ages. And the well-off kids do quite well. And the kids growing up in a home with a single parent who has two jobs doesn't do as well. Is there a surprise to that? There is no surprise to that. But what's our strategy then? Call that kid not proficient. Worry that kid year in and year out in worksheets. Penalize the teachers who are willing to fight for that kid and call them less capable teachers because their kids have lower test scores. All to what goal? Because if you look at getting good at factoring polynomials or uh, reading some completely boring reading passage and answer a multiple choice question about signs of author bias, uh, these are not important life skills. These are questions that are convenient for the test designers that get at nothing important in life. And I just say, wait a minute, we can do so much better. And by the way, we don't have to, I mean, our teachers know what's so much better. It's not that we have to go to Finland or Singapore or whatever. I mean, our teachers are doing that every day, but they fight against a strong headwind when they try to do it. And, and we need to stop that. We need to trust and respect our teachers and let them help their kids thrive in ways that reflect the creative distinctions of these kids and reflect very different starting points when it comes to the, the beginning of the school process. So, Ted, you, you talked in your keynote about your evolving views on equity, uh, stating that you used to think that education leveled the playing field, but now believe that it takes a tilted playing field and tilts it even further. Uh, and in your talk, you cite inequities in funding and resource allocation as major players in sustaining this tilted field. I think a lot of what you are just uh, just talking about as well, I, I, I think, adds to the conversation about that tilted playing field. What, what kind of led you to change your thinking in this way um, around equity and, and school? Well, but my view, you know, I've learned a lot in the last 10 years. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, if you backed up the clock and went back 15 years ago and asked me about school, I think my views would be consistent with the views of most of the adults I talk to who don't spend a lot of time thinking about school. You know, and what are those naive views? Those views are test scores tell you a lot about a kid's capabilities or the quality of a school. Uh, that, of course, every kid needs to go to four-year college. Um, and that education is one of the most powerful things in our country to level the playing field. That was my naive 15-year-old 15-year-ago view about the role of education in America. Now, having really immersed myself in it and learned from lots of people, particularly from, from our teachers in the field and administrators, you know, what do I think now? I think all of those are wrong. You know, I think that test scores tell us very little other than the level of resources 
the affluence of the family. That's what test, even the Wall Street Journal calls the SAT the student affluence test. But I think more importantly is the fact, what, one of the most important ignored Supreme Court decisions was Rodriguez versus San Antonio. When a family in San Antonio realized that their kids in the low-income part of San Antonio got dramatically inferior education opportunities from those of kids, you know, blocked away in some cases in the well-off neighborhood. And as you know, and most people listening to this know, is that much of the budget driver for our schools comes from local property taxes. And mm -hmm. San Antonio, you know, Rodriguez versus San Antonio said that's just fine. And so what's that mean? That means we live in a country where the kids who need the most get the least, and the kids that need the least get the most. And it's even worse mm -hmm. because a lot of the well-off kids then go to elite private schools, which are you know, deluging their kids in resources. And so if we're serious about racial injustice, if we're serious about addressing income inequality, I think we have to be remarkable. We have to be profoundly serious about making sure all 18-year-olds have a fair shot at life and really rethinking our priorities for age zero through 18, which means making sure every family has access to early childhood care and education. To, to not just tinker around the edges and say, maybe in a decade, our low-income schools will start to get resources more in line with our well-off, you know, the schools in well-off neighborhoods. To, to make that change, you know, if we can afford showering the well-off people in our country with one and a half trillion dollars of tax breaks in 2017, if we can direct much of the CARES relief package in the pandemic to people who absolutely don't need any financial help, I mean, if we can be cavalier about just throwing massive amounts of resources at the people that are already gushing cash, let's be intentional about reversing de decades-long, centuries-long inequities in our education system and making sure that the kids in our low-income areas have modern facilities, have teachers that work under circumstances they, they actually feel are beneficial to the kids and beneficial to the educators to make sure those after-school programs are every bit as good or better than the after-school programs that the rich kids get. You know, like this is not one and a half trillion dollars to do it. We can do this with affordable budget levels, and I think we have to mm -hmm. do it. And 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 you see that if if we don't do that, if the kids coming out of the low are trying to claw their way out of the low-income circumstances, got the short end of the stick every step of the way. And then we look at higher ed. Let, let's get to that for a second, where the most elite colleges all talk the talk about leveling the playing field. But whenever you look at it, they have as many top 1% kid kids as they have top, bottom 60% kids. I mean, that is not leveling the playing field. You know, if you're no. packing your schools, the elite colleges, the colleges that spend 100 care more to educate their kids, the colleges that deliver an experience we all fantasize when we think of kids going to college actually are grossly tilted toward the upper 1%. What's, how does that play out? And, and when the poor kids are going to not Princeton or Penn, as Paul Tuff's book goes after so effectively, but are going to schools that instead of 100K per student year in education budgets have $2,000 per student year, you know, who are hanging on by their fingernails, who can't support their kids in any meaningful way. The, the kids get there, they realize it's not a great educational experience, but it's still expensive, and then they drop out. I mean, that's the untold, you know, dark side to the college path for our kids. It's so many of the kids, particularly the kids can, they can't deal with it. 
go to school, colleges that, you know, where they're not getting that much out of it, where they're there for a couple of years and they drop out and they've got 25 to 40K of student loan debt as a dropout of, of an anonymous college. You know, like all those charter schools that brag about that happening as being a success. And so what's the answer? I mean, I think the answer is dramatically reimagining what we do from ages zero to 18, reinjecting real vigor and agility into our community colleges and making four-year colleges a lot less of a stratified pecking order and, and start leaning on these exclusive colleges to educate far more kids. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. what, why is it that your brand, why is it U.S. News and World Report value you for how many students who apply to you reject? You know, I mean, this is not helping level a playing field in America. This is tilting a grossly tilted playing field. And, and I think we just have to say, call that to an end. We've got to end this because it's just sowing the seeds for the collapse of our democracy. I, I love the fact that you go back and you talk about how um, the K-12 uh, system really needs to be doing a better job preparing students for life beyond graduation. And if we're doing that, then the need for college could be, you know, could be lessened. And, and I completely agree with that not all kids need to go to college, um, but all kids do need to be prepared for the greater world. Um, and so... But the problem is, is as we start preparing students for the greater world, it's difficult to test whether a child is prepared for those challenges, such as uh, through project-based learning or uh, experiential learning. So because schools are, are funded by tax dollars and, and are accountable to preparing our children to be the next generation who are stewards of this world, how might teachers, administrators, parents, and community members get involved to help change policies that allow for schools to be beacons that um, help students be more prepared for the real world rather than for a testing culture? Yep. So let's take a look at three levels. I'll try to be brief in addressing them. The K-12 college admissions in college. So K-12, I write about in my book what they did in New Hampshire, which I think is the most important the most profound education transformation, certainly in the history of the U.S., maybe even in the history of the world, where over an eight-year period, the state, Governor Maggie Hassan, Commissioner of Education, Jenny Berry, went from traditional education to teacher-led, reimagined accountability. So they trusted teachers to lead the way. They said, well, how do you feel? What do you think would be a fair and appropriate and better way to hold your students and you accountable. And from 2009 to 2016, they transformed to competency-based, performance-based. You know, it's not how long you've been in a seat and did you get a a passing grade, but demonstrate you really got good at things that matter and demonstrate it through authentic portfolios of work. You know, Mm. that's what we should be doing, right? And, And New Hampshire did it. I think other states should do it. It was work. You know, teachers there, when I interviewed them, said this took us a lot of effort, but we believed in it. We were so gratified that the people at the top levels of the state said, we trust you to lead the way. And what, what do you know about human nature? If you let people set their own goals, they set higher goals than they would set if somebody else sets it for them. And, and that's what they did. I mean, they, they are very demanding standards, but that's how you hold kids and teachers accountable. And, and they'd have these great, thoughtful... Some are auditing sessions, 
state, you know, school board better members, legislators, whatever, can come and observe that. And and they didn't let people off the hook. It wasn't like if a school said, oh, all of our kids are excellent at writing. Other teachers with outside observers would look at writing samples viewed by that school as excellent and call them on it if they were too generous. And the reality was that they weren't that generous, that they were hard on themselves and they pushed themselves to achieve at high levels of standards. College admissions, let's shift to that. I have been a supporter for years of the Coalition for Access, which is trying to rethink college admissions. It opens the door for colleges to look at digital portfolios of authentic student work instead of a bunch of numbers. Some colleges are pushing that. Very few do. I feel like the, the word innovation and college admissions officer really go together, but they need to. And I tell the story you know, of why I think I did so well in venture capital. And you can Google me and see I actually did quite well. And that's because I stopped looking at academic performance. I never ask about grades or GPA or test scores or any of that baloney. I, I would ask somebody that was looking to get funding for me or trying to get to me to find the right job. I'd say simply this, send me three writing samples that tell me what I should know about you. That was it. That told me mm-hmm. so much more about the person than anything else I can imagine. And what was very interesting, right, is that if their best examples of work aren't very good, it's pretty easy to get through that, right? So, so when people tell me how time-consuming <laughs> it is, I say, try it, because I did it for 25 years, and it worked really well, because if their best isn't very good, I don't need to look at everything else. And if their best is really good, it's actually interesting use of my time to kind of review it. And then I would just say, hey, you know, like, could we set up a quick follow-up phone call? I wouldn't tell them what it was going to be about. We'd get on the phone. I'd say, hey, the second writing sample you sent me was really interesting. Could you just tell me a little bit more about A, B, and C? And if they were really vague on that, I kind of knew either, I don't know what, they had gotten somebody else to help them with it or, you know, who knows what. It wasn't really deep and retained learning. But if they could really answer that, I'd say, hey, I want to talk to you. I want to interview you. And so, when college admissions tells me it's too hard to look at real examples of student work, I just say, you're only saying that because you're too lazy to try it. <laughs> so in your keynote at Enstoy, you asked, what would happen if we actually trusted, respected, and let teachers lead the way versus what we're living with today? Uh, Earlier, you talked about New Hampshire as a place where this is happening at the state level. And I'm wondering, where else have you seen this done successfully, especially in states where test scores are still being used as the measure of accountability? And what had to be in place to allow this trust in teacher expertise to flourish? Yeah, I've done a lot. You know, since I took that trip and wrote my book, I've spent a lot of time in a few states. Um, particularly and, and encouragingly in Hawaii and Virginia. Um, and so you can call me on this, Michelle, but, but you know, I, the reason I was drawn to those states was that, you know, in discussions with their, you know, uh, I think both of those states call it the uh, superintendent of public instruction, but, you know, their, their state top school officer, governors, legislators, more so now in Virginia than it was two years ago, you know, I'd meet with them and I'd say, you have two choices, right? You can tell our classroom teachers what they have to do and function as kind of a police monitor 
or you can send them the message that you trust them and you're going to be excited and celebrate their ability to transform learning experiences to forms that actually engage kids and help draw out kids' distinctive proficiencies. And, and when I found, which I found in, you know, with James Lane in Virginia or Christine uh, Kishimoto in Hawaii or uh, Don and uh, David Ige in, in Hawaii, the governor and first lady, when they sort of said, we're going to get out of your way, we're going to be more cheerleaders and supportive. And then we, and I've spent a lot of time, it's on my website and, you know, I can give you a link to that. We've got this resource called the Innovation Playlist where we capture mm-hmm. practices done by classroom educators you know, so we look for the best things going on in the field and sort of build on that. And, and we find all sorts of great things happen. You know, when you give teachers permission to create the learning experiences they think will work for that child or that class of kids, many just go, they sprint. And the other thing we're careful to say is, do not tell teachers this is what you have to do. Tell teachers we'll be excited if you do things that you believe will work. And there's a world of difference between those two. And I want to really make sure that's clear because teachers have been, and I have a great deal of empathy, and I think I have some modest understanding about this, but teachers have been on the receiving side for years of the next two thing you have to do. And by and large, they had no voice in it. They may not believe it makes sense. They're told to do it instantly. They're going to be held accountable to it instantly. And, and they know that within a year or two, it will change. And so... Under those circumstances, I think an awful lot of teachers kind of just say, I'll wait it out. You know, that superintendent of public instruction will be gone. That dictum will change. That It will all change in two years. And they've given me an impossible mission anyway. So why bother? Uh-huh. Completely different when you say, we're excited if you do it. But the important thing we do is we mm-hmm. say, don't make everybody do it. Just say, who's up for doing it? And when you do it, don't celebrate that teacher as being a better teacher, but highlight that practice as being interesting. And say, man, mm-hmm. if, if you have something else along these lines you're interested in doing, run with it. And I always say if a teacher is just like, this isn't for me, don't make them do something they don't believe in. Because actually some of those more traditional teachers are quite effective. You know, that they want the best things for their kids. And if they just are not going to get there, I visit, I go to a lot of schools where there is a fair amount of evolution in the teaching force and, and the right leaders, whether it's a teaching subcommittee or a principal, whatever, over time that school makes, and, and time is not decades, it's two, three, four years, it's a very different school. So can schools be mm-hmm. changed? Yes, we're seeing it everywhere. Can districts be changed? Absolutely. Um, can states change? I, I'm excited by what I'm seeing in, in two or three states around the country. So I'm a big believer we can do it. And I think the the current pandemic has the chance that it could accelerate change in a way that we could have never dreamed of happening six months ago. All right. So what are your thoughts here, Michelle? I feel like I mean, the biggest theme is really we, we, we need the permission and the space to be able to redesign the purpose of school. Um, you know, he gave the anecdote from his movie about high schoolers 
responding to the question about like what's the point of high school with well Mm -hmm. of course it's to get good grades so I can go into college and I thought about my early career and that's what I told kids was the point of being in school I actually told them that yes I know none of this feels like it matters to you but we all have to learn how to jump through the hoops so that we can get to where we want to be in life Um, and thankfully you know, I evolved my thinking around that uh, and realized why Why do I keep asking kids to wait to get to do what they want to do in life? Why not give them those opportunities and teach them now how right. to do that? Because when they get there, if they haven't learned how to be bold and think critically, they're still not going to know how to do it, right? Right, right. Well, and so many kids come to school already under the assumption that college is out of their grasp. I mean, a student who comes from uh, a family who's uh, who's never had a college graduate or a child of poverty or whatever, an immigrant child, et cetera. Um, I mean, ch- college seems to be out of the... Um, out of the scope of what could be done. And when we emphasis so much on when well, we're doing this so you can get to college, we've already disenfranchised a large number of our population. Um, I like to say, uh, you know, there's this big push for growth mindset today. And I like it, but um, with growth mindset, we, um, we have to remember that there needs to be a relationship involved in the process and there needs to be uh, the, the vision that I can achieve this. I like to, you know, use this example that um, if, if I were to tell you by the end of next year, Michelle, you would be able to own your own personal jet. What would you say to me? <laughs> exactly. However, if I was Ted Dintersmith and rich billionaire and I came to you and said, look, by the end of next year, you'll be able to own your own personal jet and I'm going to walk you through the process to get there. How would you feel? Um, okay, I'll give it a shot. Exactly. And so our kids come to school where high school graduation, college, it's like buying a personal jet to them. Mm. And they need to have somebody walk them through the process. I know this is difficult. I know this is out of your scope, but I'm going to be there through the process to help you get there. Yeah. Well, and, and I do, you know, I know a lot of people do say college isn't for everyone. And I agree. There are a lot of pathways to success in this life. And I feel like I get why the college for everyone push is happening is because historically we have tracked you into college or not based mm-hmm. on your race. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, those people that are pushing college for everyone, what they're really, what I think they're really trying to do is provide equitable opportunities for access to people who have been historically excluded from that access. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, I agree that college isn't the path that everyone has to go. And we need to ensure that every kid, regardless of ethnic, racial, religious, economic, linguistic background, 
if college is their path, that we give them those skills to get there uh, and not not exclude them from that because of a preconceived notion we have about people like them. Right, right. You know, in college should be something that many kids want to achieve. But we need to do a better job in the K-12 system so that kids don't need college mm. when they graduate. Mm -hmm. I mean, if college is the metric that's going to define um, how you get a good job, why can't high school be a metric for how you can get a good job yeah. beyond high school? Yeah. So. Yeah. One of the other thing that Ted said was when he was talking about teachers and, and, and schools where they've started giving kids these opportunities to do something bold and to innovate, um, that he heard time and again, I didn't know they had it in them. Uh, and my immediate thought was, that's because we didn't ever ask them. No. Right? We didn't ever give them, uh, we didn't look. To, to mm -hmm. see if they had it in them. Um, and, and how much better can schools be when we allow that space for the kids to show us what they have in them? Yeah, yeah. One of the things that um, I am a huge proponent of is student voice in the assessment process and in the reporting process. Um, and one of the things that um, I would like to see in, and when I asked Ted about the what metrics should schools be assessed on to show their quality, is a student voice. Yeah. When they graduate, how often are we going back and asking kids what was the value that you received in your educational experience? Right. Yeah. Well, and and certainly student voice can't be the only oh, measure no, of teachers, not. right? And I think that's where the pushback and the fear comes from. And because there are certainly teachers that kids love right. who still didn't prepare them for anything. Yeah, the and, and how empowering that is for kids to know that what they experience matters. Right. Can be so so useful. Um, I, I do wonder, though, as we're you know are asking kids uh, leaving high school, did we prepare you for life after high school? That's I, I feel like that's actually a really hard question um, for kids to answer because they don't know what's coming, uh, right? And 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 so, you know, if we ask, um, what do you feel prepared to do? Right. That kind of gets at the same answer in a way that uh, they know how to. Uh, right. wrap their heads around, right? Like, I don't know if I'm prepared for what's going to happen 10 years from now, um, but I know what I feel prepared to do. Right. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that too. And even, you know, we spend all this money on testing. Why can't we reduce that money or why can't we take that money and reallocate it towards surveying kids five, 10 years outside of high school? Yes, and then ETS and Pearson wouldn't have to get mad because they still have something to <laughs> sell right. us. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, they, they can use the metrics from our students. Right. Um, five, right. ten years outside. Yeah, because we're not, we, we're teachers. We're not survey writers. Like, we still need experts right. to do that. Yeah, I love that. So much is riding on teachers as we prepare the next generation. 
Are we creating a generation who is at risk of being left behind? Or are we preparing them to be engaged citizens who find creative ways to address the concerns of a rapidly changing world? If we want to break free from a culture of testing and standardization, teachers need the support of their administration, community, and policymakers, because all students need a quality education to prepare them for life in an uncertain world. Next week, we will hear from the 2017-18 Pennsylvania Teacher of the Year, Michael Soskill. Michael is a fourth grade science teacher, vice president of the Pennsylvania Teachers Advisory Committee, 2016 Global Teacher Prize Top 10 finalist, and the editor of the book, Flip the System, How Teachers Can Transform Education and Save Democracy. He'll be sharing how teachers can use their voice to take political action without being partisan. For more information about NSTOI, visit beyondthecurriculumpodcast.com and check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this program, be sure to hit the subscribe button as you will want to catch each and every episode. And remember to leave a rating and review. I appreciate the support and it helps others find the show. workshops and keynotes from the Teacher Summit and Annual Conference are available for purchase at teachersleading.eventbrite.com. Beyond the Curriculum listeners can get an additional 20% off with the code BEYONDPOD.